If you would now return to 1 John chapter 4, we'll pick up where we left off last week, beginning in verse 15. 1 John chapter 4, verse 15 through 21. This sermon I have titled, There is no fear in love. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. We're entering kind of the home stretch here now in First John. Uh, we only have one chapter left after today, and I anticipate that this letter has left a very lasting impression on each of us, and it should. The Apostle John has designed it that way, to stir Christians to godliness, to identify wickedness, and historically regarded as the apostle of love, We all hear that all the time. What we've actually observed repeatedly in this epistle is John really takes no prisoners, does he? He's asserted over the last four chapters that that there's no room in the church for those who divide the flock by lying or scandalous gossip. He says there is no place for false teaching, no provision for blatant, unrepentant sin, Nor is the church to exist as a haven for antichrists who scheme to frustrate the growth of his church. We've also discovered that Christians don't hoard their money, spend it on their own pleasures while not sharing with others. So I don't believe any of us have escaped unscathed in this one, and we are much the better for it. Well, now the apostle is going to finish wrapping up this gift that he has provided to us. He's going to tie a nice little bow on top of it. And his closing themes now from here forward will provide the Christian of confidence in our future when we see Christ. He's going to guarantee us victory against our adversaries in this world. He's going to provide us assurance that those who are born of God will persevere in the faith. Because of this, we have nothing to fear. The Christian doesn't live in fear. Yet, you know, a whole lot of people who identify themselves as Christian, they fear. And they become pessimists, and you can try to to quote to them verses from the Bible, such as, Consider it all joy when you face various trials, my brothers. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 5, When people persecute you, rejoice and be glad. Or Philippians 4.4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. 
So the Christian life, it's a joyful life. Some don't get that. Some reason the, the message does not resonate with them, and all they can think of in reply is, yeah, but it's a terrifying thing, you know, to, to, to fall into the hands of the living God. Instead of thinking about joy and rejoicing, they think about fear and punishment. Now, if this describes you, I want to encourage you today that this passage should remedy all of that. Because when you're born again, and when God has sealed you with His Holy Spirit, that He showered you with His mercy, there's no fear of God's punishment. should only remain confidence at His appearing. So look with me at verse 15. It says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. We have come to know that we have believed the love which God has for us, God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So two, three, two or three very important things to note here in this verse. First it says, we have believed the love of God which he has for us. Who are the we and who are the us? It is Christians, it says, who confess Jesus as the Christ, right? And then, of course, from, from previous chapters past that we've covered, we've also learned that this confession about Christ has to conform, has to align with foundational apostolic testimony. It isn't just what you make up. And your beliefs about Christ have to be qualified, we've learned in this epistle. You don't just confess Jesus to be well, whoever you think you want him to be, Right? You can't make up a Jesus in your mind and bow, bow down to that Jesus. Jesus has to be revealed from Scripture. And from the previous passage last week, in context, the passage we studied last week, do you remember what love means? What is love? We found out that it is divine, defined in, in God's love as it's given to us through redemption. Remember, through the cross, that is the love of God when Christ died for our sins on the cross. That's the love of God. You know, it's not some superficial philosophy that they're teaching out in Harvard or Yale somewhere. God is love. And in this context, we know that love is very real, it's verifiable. It is a tangible act on the cross that God did for us. And notice the promise to everyone who confesses Christ in soundness of doctrine. It says, God abides in him and he in God. So abiding or remaining is the promise and the privilege of the Christian. It would be difficult to fathom that each church that is reading this epistle now from 1 John doesn't also have by now the Gospel of John in their possession. The churches would have already had the Gospel of John before later reading 1 John, which was written at a later date by all evidence we have. So they've got both in their hands. They would have been drawn to John chapter 15, verse 4 in his Gospel that says, Abide in me, and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, Jesus says, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and they cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So abiding or remaining in Christ, that is the hallmark of the true Christian, the truly regenerated Christian. He who doesn't remain, though, that's the one that's not the real deal. They're not a true believer. And how do we know that? Do you remember back in in 1 John, we studied here just a few weeks ago, in chapter 2, verse 19... John was talking about Antichrist and unbelievers, and he said, They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown or made manifest that they are not of us. They went out so it would be proven they weren't of us. But if they would have been of us, they would have remained, right? And do you remember how John indicated in that passage how those who remained in the church differed from the false converts who had departed the church? It was the next verse. John continued in this passage saying, but you have the anointing of the Holy One. Right? That's the difference. You have the anointing of the Holy One. So the anointing is the difference between who remained, meaning who abided, and those who didn't. Remained and abided uh, in all of these passages, the Gospel of John, 1 John chapter 2, and what we're studying today, this word is the identical Greek word, remaining or abiding, regardless how it's translated into English. The difference between those who abide in the church and those who pull the ejection cord, John says, according to John's own interpretation of his own Greek grammar, by the way, it's those who abide are the ones who have the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God. They have been washed and renewed, we learn in Titus. They've been regenerated. Their hearts have been regenerated. They've been born of God. They've been born again. Some places born from above. They're rebirthed. They're even sealed with the Spirit, right? Whatever terminology that you want to use that describes the indwelling of the Holy Spirit describes those who permanently remain. They abide. The ones who were not anointed, they do not abide. They don't persevere. Perhaps they fall away, right? They might even be tasters of the heavenly gift, but not eaters. Some Passages might even imply that they were partakers in the evidence of the Holy Spirit. They were actually witnesses to what the Holy Spirit had done in His church, in Christ's church. But they were never anointed. They were never born again. They were never Christians, or they would have remained. 1 John 2.19, If they had been of us, they would have remained. Ephesians 
Chapter 1, verse 13, it says, In Christ you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. Not sealing is the anointing. And he continues, Who is given, that is the Holy Spirit, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view of, to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So the indwelling Holy Spirit is that promise of God. And this ceiling is re-emphasized in Ephesians again later back in chapter 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit in whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. This is the anointing that Christians have. It is promised, it is proven, and it is permanent. Listen to all these references now that come from Romans chapter 8. You'll probably want to read Romans chapter 8 later. We find in Romans 8, 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 11, If the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Or Romans 8, 9, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ... He does not belong to Christ, right? Romans 8.14 For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We're children of God. We call God Father because we've received, it says, the spirit of adoption. That is the Holy Spirit. And in case you have any further questions about our security and our destination, that same chapter, Romans 8 again, concludes with a long, very verbose treatise explaining how nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is all attributed to the permanent indwelling Holy Spirit. That is why we abide. It's also descriptive of what is known as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We have eternal security. You were sealed unto the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit doesn't move in and out, take up residence and then take a hike. The Holy Spirit claims you as children of God. That is why we abide. Not because we muster up enough confidence. We abide because we are God's children. We've received Jesus Christ as our Lord. It is a biblical Christian doctrine. So you can't lose your salvation. You cannot lose it. As we learned last week, well, you never did anything to earn it in the first place, right? It was a gift of God. You never earned it. He gave it to you. Your regenerated heart is how you were changed into one of his children. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, lest anyone should boast. So the gift of God there in that passage, as you look closely in the Greek grammar, very clear, the faith is the gift of God. The faith he gives you is a gift that comes from God. Praise the Lord. 
So with these promises of adoption into God's family being described as his children and sealed with the promise of redemption, why would any Christian fear meeting our Lord? There's nothing to fear in love. Look at me at verse 17. It says, By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, meaning Jesus, as he is, so also are we in this world. So by God's love, which he has provided to us in redemption, we're perfected. The love, uh, remember back in verse 10 from last week, it is the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction for our sins. We studied that word propitiation, and we found out that that is the way by which we were made favorable to God. That's how we became favorable in his sight. The cleansing by Christ's blood, that splattering of that perfect, unblemished sacrifice on the mercy seat is what covered our sins. It atones for us. It it renders us perfect. Now, not perfectly obedient. I don't know anyone who's perfectly obedient, but we are rendered perfect. God is completely and perfectly satisfied due to our faith in his perfect son. Let me explain this a little more. When God gazes upon redeemed Christians, when he looks at you who have been transformed by the Holy Spirit, he's pleased because he sees you and he accepts you due to the obedience of his perfect obedient son. He looks at you in Christ's eye, in Christ's picture. Um, you were spiritually baptized. Imagine this picture now. You were spiritually baptized by the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, into his church, right? The body of believers, not a building. You were baptized by the Holy Spirit into Christ's body. Christians are going to have confidence in the day of judgment. Because of the perfect obedience of his son. God says to us in 1 John 1, 7, The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. All sin. This is why we have confidence in the day. Um, Here's the reason. We're going to have the confidence in the day of judgment because we're not going to face it. We're not going to face the judgment nor the wrath of God. We are going to perceive that day. To some level, we might observe God's day of judgment. We don't know for certain. The judgment, though, will fall on unredeemed unbelievers. And their judgment will be handed down according not to an indwelling Holy Spirit or reflection of Christ at ours will. Their judgment is going to be handed down, we find in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, according to every deed that is recorded in the books. They're going to be judged according to what they did. That's not going to be good. But that's not us. That's not us. Christians are going to have confidence in that day because in God's eyes, we are perfect because His Son was perfectly obedient and the Holy Spirit baptized us through faith into this spiritual body. Hang with me here. You are baptized into 
the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. So in Christ's body, which is represented by the church, God looks down on us as if we are his perfectly obedient son. You are a child of God because you're in the body of Christ. God pictures his son. And we're washed in the blood. We're atoned for. We're covered by God's son. And Galatians 3.26 says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And the Holy Spirit baptism, the, the spiritual baptism, not the water baptism that we're going to do as a testimony to what we believe, the Holy Spirit baptism deposits us, deposits us into his body. And Galatians 3 continues in verse 27. It says this, get this, this is wonderful. For, you, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. You are now clothed with him in the body. We're clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Not our own righteousness, but we're in his body. So this is how verse 17 can conclude that we are perfect. And, and it, it is how it says, as he is, so also are we, even though we are still in the world. As he is, so are we. So is, doesn't it become blatantly obvious how essential it is to be in the body of Christ? Some people say, you know, I don't need, don't need the church. Don't need the people. Don't need to be part of it. They just kind of irritate me. I can just kind of be out here by my lonesome and be just fine. No, you can't. You need to be in the body. Now, not necessarily this local congregation, but you've got to identify yourself with the Christians, the body of Christ. Because Christ's body, his body, it's not going to face judgment on the day of reckoning. His body's not going to face judgment. This is because Christ's body was quite literally already judged on the cross. His body is judged already at the cross through the blood of Christ. You want to be in the body. He also said, it is finished. So we have nothing to fear in judgment. We have nothing to fear in the love of God. But what some people, some Christians may do, we studied this back in chapter 2, is some may shrink away in shame in that day. If Christ returns, some of us may shrink away in shame because we really haven't lived a life that has been very honoring to Christ. So that potential exists to shrink away in some shame. But you're not judged for your sins. The, judge, the sins that you have committed yesterday, today, and tomorrow are judged because you are in his body. It's done. It's finished. People say, well, you know, Jesus died for my sins that I committed before becoming a Christian, but now I've got to work out something now today going forward because they're future sins. All of your sins, all of my sins were future when Christ hung on that cross. Time frame has nothing to do with it. What matters is if you are baptized by the Holy Spirit into his body. Additionally, in verse 18, um, 
we see the effects of this, this doctrine of perfection in our minds, or on our minds, excuse me. Remember, we are positionally perfect before God as Christ was perfect. Verse 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment. Christians don't fear, because we're not going to be handed down punishment. And here we see the contrast now between believers and unbelievers. The verse continues, And the one who fears is not perfected in love. The unbeliever, in contrast, then fears this day of judgment. They fear death. They fear the fact that they haven't been perfected in the love, which we know is the redemption at the cross, the propitiation for our sins, the substitution of Christ on our behalf. They have not been perfect, perfected in that. They're going to have something to fear. For those folks, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God unbelievers only who should fear death and judgment we have confidence in christ we have his anointing second timothy chapter 1 verse 7 to 9 in this paul the apostle says for god has not given us a spirit of timidity king james says spirit of fear god has not given us a spirit of fear but of power and love and discipline. And he goes on, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as his prisoner. Paul was in prison at this time. But join me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So how, how can Paul be in prison, potentially facing execution? He is facing execution. And then still have no fear of death whatsoever. Yet to encourage others to not be ashamed of Jesus Christ in the gospel. How can you do that in prison when you're about to lose your head? Because he knows that Christ had chosen him and, and Paul had experienced a changed life due to the Holy Spirit in his life. The regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Because, you know, Paul was at one time, Paul was a young man, a young Pharisee named Saul. And Saul, he took great joy in punishing God's elect children. And, and this is Paul's now own autobiography that I'll read for you. Uh, about this time in his life, this is in his own words, Acts 26, verse 9. Paul said, I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but I also... When they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. That's what Saul did. It's a murderer. And he continues, And I punished them often in all the synagogues. I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. That was the Apostle Paul. 
and, the, and this young man Saul, he was heading, we know, to one foreign city named Damascus. And Saul was going to Damascus to save Christians. No. He was going to Damascus to, because he heard there's a Bible study there. They're going to have donuts and coffee and all the good stuff, like we do in the activities building. Right? No. Paul was going to Damascus because he was wanting to exterminate everything that represented Jesus Christ. That's what Saul was doing. That was his intention. But Christ intervened and called him out. That's what you and I were doing. We were taking great pleasure in sinning and rejecting Jesus. We were on the road to self-destruction when God intervened and renewed us with His Holy Spirit. But why did God intervene with Saul the Pharisee? Why did He intervene with you, Gerald? Why did God intervene with you, Patricia? Eddie? Why did He intervene in your life and give you the Holy Spirit? so that he could demonstrate his compassion, his mercy, his grace, and his love, even of the worst of sinners, even of the murderers, and he could reform them into a new creation and call them out to worship Jesus Christ. Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, this murderer said, past murderer, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am chief. Yet for this reason I found mercy. What reason? He continues, So that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. It was an example that there's no one that can't be saved. And he ends with this. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Being saved caused the Apostle Paul to, to worship. You saved me from, from what? All that I did, and you saved me? It causes redeemed sinners to worship. It's the same with you and me. God's grace results in worship and service and sacrifice and love. It doesn't result in fear. We have nothing to fear. And we love, verse 19 says, because he first loved us. Our ability to love one another is a response of God loving us first. You know, God, He'll love the unlovable. He will. That's what agape love is. It's love that's not reciprocated. It's God's love. It's not done because of something that you did for me. It's not an exchange. Agape originates from God. So our response with the God of the Holy Spirit indwelling us is to love others who are unlovable. I mean, take a look around. Some of us are 
a bit unlovable, aren't we? Yet you can love. You can love God's people with sacrificial love. Verse 20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, meaning other Christians, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen, he can't love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should also love his brother, even if they're unlovable. The late uh, Dwight Pentecost, he's a long-time professor at Dallas Seminary, said in, in a book that he wrote designed to be like him, designed to be like Christ, he said, The proof that one has been born into God's family is to love as God loves, not responding to that which, which is attractive, but loving that which may be unattractive, because one wills to love. We decide to love. If you can't love Christ's body, which you can see, it's said that you, you surely can't love God who you can't see. It means you haven't been born of God. You haven't been born of the love of God. The Holy Spirit hasn't worked in your life if you can't love something that's unattractive. Because God loves it, we love it. But this supernatural agape love, it originates from God and then comes through the spiritual rebirth in us. That's how we put up with one another. Even when we're really difficult. Consider this verse. Actually, considering all these verses. You know, you'll, you'll hear people say that I love Jesus, but I just don't really love his church. No. I know you can be frustrated. All of us can be. We're still in the flesh, right? Maybe you don't actually like his church because you haven't been born of God. Christians love Christ's body. And we love it to the point that, that when one member suffers, we want to help it. We want to share in that suffering. If one is hungry, we ache to want to share in their hunger, to provide for their hunger. Because when you're taking care of this body, the spiritual body, the church of God, when you're providing for it, you're providing for Christ himself. He is the body. Taking care of his body pleases Jesus Christ. I shared part of the following passage a few weeks ago. Uh, it's a wonderful illustration how we love Jesus Christ and, and we demonstrate our love for all his redeemed people, all of his body, all of his church. What a great picture in Scripture, throughout Scripture, of Christ being a body. These are the people whom he, he bled, he died for. And the scene is Matthew chapter 25. And it occurs uh, during the Holy Week. This is the Holy Week now prior to the crucifixion. And the king has made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey colt, right? He cleansed the temple for the second time. He, he's now already had multiple confrontations with the Pharisees, the religious elite who wanted to exterminate him. They're plotting against him. So Jesus is preparing his disciples now, uh, and the text tells us that at this time, there are only two days before Jesus goes to the cross, two days before the crucifixion. 
and he gives them the pass-fail criteria concerning the day of judgment. Notice how this represents everything uh, concerning those who love Christ, his church, the brethren, and how it's demonstrated. You'll remember this passage from, I think it's four weeks back. When the day of judgment arrives, we will not have any fear. Jesus says, Matthew 25, verse 31, But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right, and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those sheep on his right, Come you who are blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared from you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison. Remember the Apostle Paul? A lot of people were in prison. A lot of Christians were imprisoned still are. Jesus says, I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you feed, or when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers... You did it to me. You did it to his body. Even to the least of them, it says. One of these brothers, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say, Jesus will also say to those on his left, the goats, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire for which has been prepared for the devil and for his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked, you didn't clothe me sick and in prison you did not visit me then they will themselves will also answer lord when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you then jesus will answer them truly i say to you to the extent that you did not do it to one of these least of these again the brethren the church the body of christ the extent you did not do it to these you also did not do it to me You didn't help my body. These, he says, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Some people say you still don't need to be concerned about whether or not you're in the church. Again, not the building, but in the body. Oh, you've got to be in the body important to note on that passage as we wrap up here that uh, all that they did for the body all the deeds that they did isn't what earned them into heaven the reason they did the deeds is because their lives had been changed by the Holy Spirit so it was an outpouring it was a demonstration of their love it was a fruit of regeneration so these people had been changed and for that reason they did it for the body of Christ
Aren't you glad we're here loving church? Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord he put us into his body. Let's pray. Dear Father, what an amazing plan you had for us to redeem us from our evil, redeem us from our sin, Lord God, and then make something useful of us. Oh, we would have shipwrecked it, Lord. But you changed our hearts, Lord, and you made us useful to you so that we could bring you glory. Lord, we're thankful that uh, that fruit of regeneration, that fruit that lives out through our lives, Lord, that uh, it shows that we belong to you, that we love you, Lord, and that we love your church. Lord, we're so thankful that we've already been judged at the cross, that you took our punishment for us in your own physical body so that we would be spared the judgment. Lord, we pray for all those around us in this community, near and far, at home and abroad, Lord God, that don't know you, that you would find us useful and worthy to serve you in taking the gospel, the good news, to the world. Lord, we know you're active, building your body, building your church, Lord God, and the gates of Hades will not be able to stand against it. Lord, help us to be compassionate. Help us to be loving when it's difficult to be loving. Help us to be graceful. Help us to, Lord, uh, forgive as you've forgiven us. We're so thankful, God, and uh, we praise you in the holy and exalted name of Jesus Christ. Amen.